At the core of economists' fallacy is the belief that money is money by decree because the state and its expert economists say so, which means they don't fully recognize the power held by the people's collective decisions. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. Got another Bitcoin magazine read for you today. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And this one is on why it is that the modern anthropologist might actually have a better grasp of Bitcoin and its vast potential than the mainstream economist does. It's really a fascinating perspective and one that I think adds kind of a fresh angle on this that we've danced around quite a bit on the show, but I don't think I've, we've ever really hit it directly. Um, this is a really good one by author Mick Marucci. Uh, this is our first time read by him, at least I think so, but I will be keeping an eye out uh, for uh, this one. Very, very, very interesting piece. Um, so before we get into it, real, real quick thanks to Shift Crypto for the hardware wallet that will take you from zero to sovereign in as few steps as possible, the Bitbox O2. It is open source, built by Bitcoin developers actually, a native app with tons of awesome features, and it's just a cool little device. Guy Swan, that's swan with two N's, dot com slash Bitbox will take you straight to the store, and coupon code Guy, G-U-I, gets you 5% off. And of course, our other awesome sponsor, Swan Bitcoin, the one and only for the automated savings plan. It's got low fees, daily, weekly, or monthly buys. You set it once and forget it. Auto withdrawal, I just confirmed my latest auto withdrawal. Uh, smash by the dip, it's Bitcoin only. What more could you want? Free sats? Oh, well, they've got that too. SwanBitcoin.com slash guy, $10 in free sats just for signing up. And with that, let's get into today's excellent read and it's titled, Why Anthropologists Are More Interested in Bitcoin Than Economists, by Mick Marucci. Mainstream economists are renowned for bashing on Bitcoin. Anthropologists, on the other hand, are becoming more interested in it. Why? I am an anthropologist and economist who went down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. I wrote this paper to clarify my thoughts about why these two disciplines respond so differently to Bitcoin. What is anthropology? Anthropology is a social science that is concerned with understanding culture through participatory observation, or ethnography, cultural immersion in the social worlds being studied. This research method is at the heart of the discipline, and it forces practitioners to get out there, to expose themselves, and to experience the culture being studied as a local. This might explain why anthropologists often end up in heated debates with economists, who instead understand the world through numeric aggregates and abstract models. Mainstream economists take a top-down view of the world based on deductive reasoning stemming from their models and assumptions, which are heavily influenced by classical Newtonian physics and its notion of, quote, equilibrium of the heavenly bodies, and lack the systems perspective 
that emerged from thermodynamics and influenced engineering, Alizart, 2020. In contrast, anthropology, which involves both deductive and inductive logic, is mostly focused on the latter. Observed and experienced real-life evidence leads to the formation and recalibration of theoretical frameworks. First comes the evidence, then comes theory, and so forth. More on this in the limitations section. Another key element of anthropology is its concern for the emic, people's subjective beliefs and experiences of the world, above the etic, the objective truth. So, anthropology takes the view that objective measures, such as various economic growth parameters, can mean very little when abstracted away from people's experiences and lived realities. Looking at the emic gives anthropology a superpower, the ability and need to be open to alternative belief systems, challenge its own mental models, take in additional insights, and craft a more nuanced and holistic view of the world as a result. Anthropologists are not scared of dealing with people's belief systems because it relativizes them. That means that each culture must be viewed as a truth that must be understood as a rational system on its own merits, which is why judging a culture from an external point of view often leads one to miss the point. In anthropology, emic truth is multiplicitous and relative, rather than universal and absolute. What does this mean? Quote, cultural relativism doesn't mean that 2 plus 2 does not equal 4. These claims by self-proclaimed anthropologists are bogus. It just means that a particular belief system may have come to that conclusion, and that in itself may reveal something about that culture. Anthropologists recognize that math and physics have more adequate tools, languages, and frameworks to assess the etic and to establish that 2 plus 2 does equal 4. For that, we need mathematicians. Anthropologists are not afraid of dealing with the complexity of people's beliefs. They thrive when doing this thanks to their toolkit of methods and frameworks to make sense of belief systems and behaviors. So why are anthropologists interested in Bitcoin, and many economists aren't? Anthropology has a long tradition of writing about the alien, quote, other. And Bitcoin certainly represents a new type of exotic other for the majority of the world's population. So anthropologists have approached the culture of Bitcoin as it would approach any other, with no judgment and with openness to challenge its own preconceptions of it. Anthropologists have ventured to study the world of Bitcoin miners, holders, speculators, and local Bitcoin merchants, among others. This has allowed them to understand the community's beliefs and points of view by going beyond their own perspectives. Many anthropologists have come out of the studies inspired by the ethos and beliefs of these communities, as I will explain in more depth in the next section. In contrast, mainstream economists continue looking at Bitcoin from the comfort of their ivory towers. Nobel Prize-winning economist Paul Krugman, Nouriel Roubini, Steve Hanka, and many others have systematically dismissed Bitcoin as a bubble, tulip, or speculative asset with little regard to how people actually use and view it today. Economics as a discipline is locking itself in an echo chamber, siloed from other perspectives and receiving little feedback from the outside. It also lacks the methodological tools to make sense 
of cultures. No wonder it mistakenly reduces Bitcoin's meme culture to an irrelevant tribal phenomenon. But the core of the economist's fallacy is epistemological. What is recognized as truth, and where does truth come from? Does it come from the top, meaning the state or God, or the bottom, the local popular beliefs? When it comes to money, who decides what is money? The truth of money. Mainstream economics lives off the assumption that money is money by fiat meaning that its value is determined by the state's ultimate judgment and formal decree. In contrast, anthropology, being interested in people's views and beliefs, has no problem accepting Bitcoin as money because ultimately, people believe that it is, and that is how they use it. Quote, By 2005 or so, it will become clear that the Internet's impact on the economy has been no greater than the fax machines. Nobel Prize-winning economist Paul Krugman, 1998. At the core of economists' fallacy is the belief that money is money by decree, because the state and its expert economists say so, which means they don't fully recognize the power held by people's collective decisions. Anthropologists are also interested in Bitcoin because it is not a threat to the discipline's status quo. Anthropology is mostly a descriptive discipline, concerned with making sense of things as they are, rather than messing with things. In contrast, economics is all about prescribing and intervening in the economy. The economy needs to be stimulated and then stabilized, and employment needs to be maximized. As a result, Bitcoin, which cannot be controlled in terms of monetary policy, massively limits the scope of economics to act on the economy. Bitcoin may well be challenging economists' core beliefs and perhaps their relevance. Ouch! Having said that, this is not true of all economics. For example, there are heterodox approaches that take more of a systems perspective, such as the Austrian school, which flips the episteme around. Truth and economic activity come from the economic actions of the individual rather than the state the latter of which are not seen as fundamental to economic life. So what are anthropologists saying about Bitcoin? After looking at anthropologists' foundational methods, theories, and epistemologies, it is worth checking what anthropologists are saying about Bitcoin. 1. Bitcoin is money. Anthropologists have no problems admitting that Bitcoin is money. First and foremost, quote, because people call it so, and many use it as money. Kavanaugh et al. 2. Bitcoin leverages people's ethos. Research on Bitcoin miners has revealed the degree of excitement and creative energy that surrounds the Bitcoin space, and it is this ethos and ethic of the Bitcoin community that may infect the world. 3. The values and rituals of the Bitcoin community are important for Bitcoin's success. A study by Kenny demonstrated that Bitcoin adoption by individuals follows a distinct process. First, adopters discover the value of Bitcoin on their own terms. Next, they reflexively overcome challenges to these initial perceptions of its value. Finally, they reaffirm their embeddedness in the system through rituals of commitment, 
such as today's laser raise to 100k phenomena on crypto Twitter. This reaffirms the importance of group identity to the social structure of Bitcoin as money. Thus, the Bitcoin community's value systems and rituals make Bitcoin mature and have helped to establish it as money. As the Bitcoin community has also clarified, Bitcoin is backed not only by technology and numbers, but also by memes. 4. Bitcoin is not just speculation Anthropologists reject the notion that Bitcoin is just about speculation. Bitcoin is an asset for owners to hold for the long term. Bitcoin is sustained not only by greed, but also by community, beliefs, and a sense of belonging. A link to Balinese cockfights and Bitcoin. 5. Bitcoin is a mirror. The meaning of Bitcoin is, quote, loose enough to mean many things to the members of the community, but specific enough to bind that community together. The facts that this community is a new type of organism, reference Brandon Quittum, and that Bitcoin's valuation is difficult to establish, mean that each person can project the meanings and desires of their choice on them. Bitcoin tells us all what we want to believe, and that is true of both lovers and critics, reference Kavanaugh et al. 6. Bitcoin is highly political. So Bitcoin has the ability to create political bodies. It has the ability to project our primitive human passions, even in ways that are destructive to the current political, economic, and social systems. Reference Calderaro. For example, to the Bitcoin community in cyberspace and offline, hodling is a way of countering state-controlled debasement of the value of money. Reference Marucci. Furthermore, a study of a Bitcoin coffee shop in Slovakia showed how the staff supported the initiation of Bitcoin, quote, newbies. Bitcoin provided a great degree of power and freedom from the state's big brother techniques of control to the coffee shop. Reference Treminsky. Interestingly, others have come to the conclusion that Bitcoin can help us to overcome corporate power entrenchment caused by the centralization of new technologies, which is currently in the hands of a few tech corporations. 7. Bitcoin is not just dependent on the math and is not entirely trustless. Its social layer is essential to maintaining it and giving it value. Anthropologists have criticized the Bitcoin community's belief that Bitcoin is totally trustless and entirely, quote, run by numbers. According to anthropologists, this would be impossible because we are social creatures, which means that Bitcoin's socio-cultural layer plays an important role in determining whether it has value and what that value is. The formation of democratic communities in the digital economy remains embedded in social relations. So the idea that Bitcoin is not mediated by any institution is seen as an illusion. Reference Tyler and Bill Maurer. A similar stance has been echoed by Giacomo Zucco, who proclaimed the importance of maintaining a Puritan Bitcoin-only stance, whereby all cryptocurrencies besides Bitcoin are declared shitcoins and not worthy of holding. Quote, You need dogma. You need taboo. You need social protocols to force people to be better. What Bitcoin Did Podcast. This further highlights that the social layer of the Bitcoin protocol is just as important as the technical one. 8. 
The nature of money is changing, and Bitcoin will play a critical role in the future. Anthropologists have noticed that thanks to Bitcoin, serious questions are being raised about the nature of money, which has important implications about society and humanity at large. Even if it fails, Bitcoin is a fascinating, breaching experiment that helps to reveal how money is implicated in the social order and how particular values and practices come to emerge. Reference Kavanaugh et al. In his book, The Social Life of Money, Dodd wrote that what is considered money has changed through time and that we are on track to see it change again. Money is becoming increasingly fragmented and Bitcoin is likely to play a role in the future of money. Quote, The era in which money was defined by the state is coming to an end. Money can and likely will be organized differently. Dodd the social life of money. Anthropology's limitations in understanding Bitcoin. Anthropology is far from perfect, and it has some challenges as a framework for understanding Bitcoin. Point. Anthropology lacks the quantitative toolkits needed to be able to understand and research on-chain activity, from which one can gain many behavioral insights. We need to push anthropology to be able to understand the technical backbones of our digital world so that it can remain relevant and engage in broader discussions with other disciplines. Point. Anthropology has always been a highly diverse discipline, welcoming perspectives, theories, and approaches from very different viewpoints and other disciplines. However, in the last few decades, it has been undergoing increasing homogenization towards hyper-reflexive, highly theoretical and overly philosophical schools of thought, which often lose touch with people's everyday lives. And, anthropology lacks a systems view of macroeconomics and does not do enough to understand the basics of the current monetary paradigm. This leads many anthropologists today to view the market as simply dysfunctional and the system as simplistically capitalistic or neoliberal with little awareness of the extensive role that central banks play in economies. Like the rest of academia, anthropology has no or little skin in the game, so not only can it afford to be wrong, but it can continue being wrong and pretending that it is right. Anthropology does not need to be scared to become more applied in praxis, and by doing so, it can grow its methods and frameworks. This is what the hybrid discipline of design anthropology is doing today. Conclusion The key takeaway here is that anthropologists have many interesting things to say about Bitcoin. In contrast, economists' commentaries are often very stale and uninformed. Anthropologists recognize the important role that Bitcoin is playing in leading us to rethink what money is, which in turn has many consequences for social life. At the same time, anthropologists also recognize that the social dynamics and community surrounding Bitcoin, its memes, and the socio-cultural elements of the Bitcoin phenomenon are critical to its success. Anthropology may not be the best discipline to understand Bitcoin as a whole, but the same can be said about every other discipline on its own. Bitcoin is complex, and to fully understand it would require an understanding of engineering, cryptography, incentives, culture, social psychology, network systems, and much more. 
In other words, it is not a one-discipline job. The cultural and social aspects of the Bitcoin phenomenon cannot be understated and overlooked, as therein lie answers to many questions, such as the why. Why do people care about Bitcoin? Why should we care about Bitcoin? Well, for many anthropologists, this technology may well bring money back into the hands of the people. All right, and that closes out uh, why anthropologists are more interested in Bitcoin than economists. Let's hit our sponsor real quick and we'll be right back. Are you an anthropologist wanting to explore the true Bitcoin culture? What it means to be a Bitcoiner? Well, the true Bitcoiner uses Bitcoin-only services. They stack regularly. They automate it because machines work for us. They smash by the dip. They never sell and they withdraw to their own keys. True Bitcoiners use Swan Bitcoin. If you want to get into the mind of a Bitcoiner, start your account with Swan and start living a life of sats, of toxic, relentless stacking, of dumping poverty paper and finding cryptographic sovereignty. SwanBitcoin.com slash guy will get you a free taste of those sweet, sweet sats just for signing up. Swan Bitcoin, only for anthropologists and true Bitcoiners. This to me is another great example of the incredible multidisciplinary nature of Bitcoin. And, and, and maybe this is kind of inherent to the idea of money itself in the, the quote-unquote disagreement, you could say, between the economist and the anthropology perspective. Um, but the fact that anthropology is able to more clearly see this as a social phenomenon, that, that money is a tool of organization, and humanity has really been going through a multi-thousand-year process of reiterating on and reestablishing new organizational protocols. It's how we deal with each other. And what's funny is that anthropology is able to look at that more objectively. They're able to see it merely as another belief system and how it is that like money as a belief system. And, and I, I say that I really don't want to give the wrong impression because I've talked about this a lot on the show is that there is a there is a fallacy that goes that when because money is a because it can be described as a collective belief system is that people tend to think that that means it's arbitrary that becomes like the default stance is like oh well if it's a belief system then we can just believe anything is money and that isn't true if we all believed that maple leaves were money and we all wanted to use maple leaves as money. And even if that belief was diehard, like it was one of the most incredible beliefs that we could possibly put. Like, I mean, we believed it as deeply as we believed we are human beings. It would still be a terrible money and it would collapse. There would be nothing to actually prop it up. There would be nothing to sustain it. It would still be a horrible uh, good from a monetary characteristics perspective. That belief would essentially die out. There would be no way for it to survive. So just in the context of money as a belief system, I want to make sure that that is understood, that that does not make it arbitrary, even though it is, in a lot of ways, a, a deeply social phenomenon and also a source of truth, quote-unquote truth, among a certain community that we 
we desire and understand and value cryptographic truth, the, the cryptographic validity of what the Bitcoin network tells us. But there is a big degree of trust. There is a degree of understanding cryptography. There is a degree of trusting the cryptographic assumptions. There is a degree of trusting that the, the, digital, the digital interface, the digital, uh, excuse me, the environment can actually produce the security and the, the totem of unchanging immutability that Bitcoin provides. There is a lot about the culture, about the social layer, about what it is that we know and think and understand about Bitcoin that goes into our recognition or belief that Bitcoin is the truth. And there's a great quote uh, from one of the ones that I snagged from this one. It says, anthropologists are not scared of dealing with people's belief systems because it relativizes them. That means that each culture must be viewed as, quote, a truth that must be understood as a rational system on its own terms which is why judging a culture from an external point of view often leads one to miss the point. And I really like this perspective. I like the idea of looking at something within the context of the culture that sees it. It's one of those things that we fail so badly in looking at history is being unable to see it outside of our own perspective. So we have our own frame of reference as to what is right and what is wrong, what is valuable and what is not and to see things in like a scientific light rather than a narrative light or something and because of that we often have such a contrived or ill understood view of history and view of past cultures and civilizations like a great example is just go back 2000 years 3000 years when we're talking about the time of the bible and all these great stories told i think it's actually jordan peterson um, that uh, articulated this the best, in my opinion, and just really kind of made me think so differently about what those stories are, about what the point of those things being written down are, and what exactly they were trying to convey. We take this incredibly literal interpretation of what those stories mean because we think of it in data points and control experiments and this, this is explicit information related to this, that, or the other. But remember, the scientific revolution didn't happen until the 1600s. It was really the 1600s and the 1700s period in which we really started to analyze our world as data and numbers. Before that, it wasn't even a part of how we thought about things. Everything was thought about, and, and this, is the, this is the core innovation of humanity, I think, is why we actually were able to tell these collective stories and organize at such a scale that other organisms can't, is the ability to tell collective stories, which means those narratives are telling us something about who we are as people. What is it about the state of being human? What is it about jealousy? What does jealousy do to us? What does having a calm, stoic center and, and having self-confidence and belief in ourselves and that uh, our, our, moral, our moral principles are in fact tested in every way, shape, and form that we can to know that they are as valid as a moral principle can be. And Jordan Peterson has so much of breaking down the Bible from a psychology standpoint is what about human nature is the story of Cain and Abel trying to tell us? 
Not necessarily that Cain was a real person or that Abel was a real person, and, and they could very well have been, but what they were doing was telling a story of jealousy, telling a story of not having a, of the right aim in your life, of always comparing yourself to someone else rather than comparing yourself to yourself. Stories about how uh, the difference or the, the complications and the problems that come from looking outward for your principles or your understanding of the world or your view of the world rather than looking inward. And suddenly, like, there's this, this rich knowledge that comes from those narratives because they're telling, they're telling you things about yourself. And to think of it like a series of dates and events is completely missing the point. Nobody from that time had a context of those stories that had anything to do with that. None of that. That is explicitly the things that were not important about those stories. And that's really what's so interesting to me about when Jordan Peterson breaks that down because it's a, it's, he hits it from a psychological perspective, right? So he has this anthropologist, like very similar to the anthropology view of what is the context of the civilization that told these stories and what would they see in them? Not what do I see in them, but before hygiene, before biology, before chemistry, before physical sciences, before physics, before any of the data or scientific revolution, before the enlightenment, before the printing press, when people are just telling each other stories, what is meaningful in those stories? What gets exaggerated and what stays the same? Why do we relate to stories? There's a really good book called Wired for Story, um, and uh, I highly recommend it. It's, it's something that uh, I mean, being somebody who, you know, was a filmmaker in college and is kind of going all the way back around to trying to get back into film with 111 Productions. Um, and and I love narrative, like the idea of a story and the fact that we can relate and identify so strongly with somebody that we see on a screen. And that there are these very explicit like arcs and steps to really like viciously internalizing that identification with a character on a screen is something that has always fascinated me. And there's so much strictly about our biology and how our, our neural, our nervous system and our brain actually work that are truly, I mean, that's, that's where the title of this book come from, comes from, is Wired for Story. How story is something that is internal to our actual functionings, our relationship to the world. Everything that is relevant to us, is told in the context of a story. We know the value of a chair because we tell a story about how I'm going to go sit in this. I'm going to be comfortable. This is going to be a place. It's, it's about the story of how that chair relates to us. And all the things that don't relate to us or that aren't in our immediate story when we go by throughout the day is just totally in the background. Like if something... You know, if somebody moved some of the furniture in your house that you usually don't use, if like twisted it just a little bit, most people wouldn't even know. Have you ever had that happen where you have something that's just been so far in the background because it's not a part of your daily story that there might actually be like a kind of a significant change over in that corner of the room, but it's so far out of your scope of what's relevant to you on a day to day basis that you just have no idea. You just don't even notice it. I don't know, I always thought that was, that was always kind of an interesting quirk about how we direct our attention and our focus and that everything, that even, even when we're, you know, lost in space, like with our heads and we're just kind of out there lit thinking about something, we still only relate to things 
in regards to the story we're telling ourselves about the next task that we have, about the next thing that we're trying to figure out. And it's why our, and we get attached to these things. It's why when our expectations aren't met, we have this story about our future. And then that story collapses. We become attached to that story and we get disappointed. It's, it's so, it's just so fascinating how much, how everything that we do truly is a story in, in some form or fashion. Like our, that is the only way that our brain works. It is a pattern recognition machine and a story is a pattern about the meaning of something in our lives, in our future, and as we progress through trying to achieve something meaning to, meaningful to our survival, to our value in the world. And that anthropologist view of Bitcoin, of looking at money from that context, from a naturally occurring collective belief in something that is stable, that is a source of truth, in order to trade, in order to communicate that values, those values and just economic value in general with other people. It's just funny that they would grasp its value or understand how powerful it could be so much easier than technically the science that should be explicitly understanding and researching exactly that thing. Uh, and, but, I, but I also think it's, it's less economics in general or economists in general and more the the state of economics today is how close-minded and how attached to their models economics is i think it's really just kind of been bastardized been by um the dominance and abuse of the economics idea of the economics mindset by government institutions, which basically have no other incentive other than, want, other than to want to insert themselves into the importance of economics. Everything, everything done in economics, because the incentive is to abuse as much as possible, everything that you can get away with, you get away with. And this is something that is totally inherent to humanity. I mean, watch a three-year-old, a four-year-old kid. They will push until they get you to get someone to yell at them, right? They're always pushing the boundaries of what can I do here? What's my limit? How long can I do this, that, or the other before I've pissed somebody off? We don't lose that, you know, and when you have an unaccountable institution that has the quote-unquote privilege, the moral uh, exception to steal from someone, and do whatever the hell it wants and then blame the person they stole from as the reason it didn't work out, well, that's going to go sideways eventually. There's not really, you've, you've destroyed the very economic incentive that puts brakes on their irresponsibility and corruption. A little bit, a little bit of sidetrack there, but uh, like, so in the case of economics is that I think it's been so dominated by government economics that it's lost all of the understanding or the embracing of the natural history of economics. You know, it's funny, government money is actually a incredibly modern phenomenon. It is not at all. Like even for the thousands of years that the governments were coining gold and silver, it wasn't because the coin, the coining itself was the money. It's because it was just a trusted way to measure its amount. That's all it was. The money was still natural. Unnatural or fiat money is an incredibly recent development. I mean, we're looking 200 years really for it to have become 
the standard across the world of it was really a process through the 1800s and then the 1900s just it was a gradually then suddenly thing right is that we started to get more and more um money substitutes debts and paper bills that are redeemable for gold until we were so many layers away from the natural money that it actually became fiat in full force but it's really kind of a 20th century 19th century thing and that's about it money has always been an incredibly natural thing and the fact that the whole profession of economics is basically tossed out about 10,000 years of history as unimportant and now we've got the We've got the final form of money, and it's just government. And government is the only thing that could have uh, real money. And the idea of a natural money reoccurring again is just bad economics because deflationary sound natural money is just going to cause chaos because obviously stability is only a thing that government could achieve. Clearly, the natural world and the actual market interactions are just complete chaos until the government comes in and smooths everything out and fixes everything via the vision of our great and genius omnipotent overlords it's such a stupid like economics is has been so contrived in my opinion for like the keynesian theory and there's a great story that i feel like is such a microcosm of the way economics is actually built today uh it was from Oh, God, I'm not going to be able to remember where I actually heard this, um, maybe in a book, I think. But it was somebody who had gone to this presentation of this economist who was unveiling this this really great model of uh, the specifically the like fast food and meat and like burger industry or, or, or economy, like just the whole subset of the economy that is around the production, the distribution, and the consumption, like all of the interactions and the, the modeling, modeling of the entire industry of essentially the beef and burger industry. And he was giving this presentation and the person who was writing this was basically watching the presentation. So they were in the audience and watching this guy break down this huge elaborate model that he has done. And this is how the beef industry works, which is different from all the other industries. It was, it was literally like trying to suggest that the economics of the beef industry was unique to the beef industry. That everything is unique and everything needs its own model for understanding it. And that he was going to be able to create his model and slap his name on it. And then this was our understanding of beef economics because it's not, it's not the rest of economics. It's specific to this one. And I think a that's a lot of where economics goes wrong today is that it sees everything in isolation. And rather than digging down to those core principles, the axiomatic things that we can know as absolute truths of economics and then deriving from that the potential consequences or interactions of different industries and types of products and networks, instead they try to look at everything in isolation and create some new model for it. But anyway, long story short, this guy's watching this presentation and basically seeing all of these contradictions in it. And, and not necessarily contradictions in the model, but contradictions in, contradictions in the fact that he had created a model that didn't actually look like the beef industry. And so he went up to him after the presentation and said, you know, this part and this part, like these things aren't actually true. These things have 
like this is not actually how the beef industry works. You actually have something like this, this, and this, or whatever. And he was like interrupted. And the economist, the, the guy who had created the model said, well, that's not how my model works. And this guy in this, the story that I'm reading is he basically said, he basically was kind of dumbfounded for a second. He was like, you mean you don't care that your model is just for a fantasy world? It's just completely made up. It has nothing to do with reality. And you hold more value in your model that you created than the truth of the actual production and distribution and incentives within the beef industry. And I always thought that was that story really stuck with me um, for it's been years and years since I've read it or wherever it is that I actually stumbled upon it. If anybody happens to know that story, uh, let me know. I'd love to uh, get a refresh on that. But that always stuck out to me as like, wow, like like that's the that's the kind of arrogance when something becomes academia for its own sake rather than academia for the sake of understanding the world. I think economics is a very good example of that because it's been such a self-serving, how do I get the government to like my theory because the theory is beneficial to all the people who are in charge of the grants, who are in academia from birth to death, so they never actually are part of the real economy. Like It becomes this self-serving, isolated culture that doesn't even interact with or, or really understand the real world. It, it just becomes its little separate little thing to just funnel everybody into the political apparatus. I mean, a lot of generalizations there, and I think I'm talking about like really big trends and gradual incentives. So it's not as if it's uh, perfectly monoculture in practice, but I think the incentives and the uh, social ostracization of anybody who doesn't quote-unquote toe the line I think it essentially leads to the fact that you are not going to be successful. You are not going to be at the Ivy League institutions. You are not going to be getting your government grants. You're not going to be a, con a part of the economists, uh, economic advisory tables for any president or anything if you are not accepting of that culture and basically reinforcing the status quo of the economics academia. And part of that is absolutely part of that culture, part of that economics industry or uh, the, the prevailing economic thought is that money is a top-down central structure rather than a bottom-up emergent phenomenon. And I think any brief understanding, real, a thorough understanding of monetary history is that the top-down central structure of money is the tiniest of tiny slivers of true monetary history. And not only that, the most tumultuous and disastrous of monetary history. I think we've basically proven, uh, if, if anything, if, if you know, fiat money, if the last century and a half of uh, monetary history is anything to go by, is what a disaster it has been to have money as a top-down central structure. But, uh, and, I, and I really like Saifedean's framing on this that he's uh, digging into in the fiat standard, his next book coming out. Is uh, which there are a handful of chapters available on his, uh, I guess it's like safedine.com if I'm not mistaken. I don't know, I'll try to uh, get the link if you haven't checked it out. But it's of looking at fiat as a necessary evolution of money as we became increasingly a, an, an insanely fast and virtual economy. That as we started to communicate from you know California to North Carolina, like all the way across the country, 
in a matter of minutes and hours and trying to do business, you simply couldn't have a physical money. And then the nature of the digital space never had a anything, it could not inherently have true monetary characteristics. So money became a tool of trusting the, cor the correct central party, and uh, which obviously has all of the fallbacks or all the um, bad incentives and basically inevitable corruptions of the incredible amount of power that trust gives to another human being. And, you know, everybody knows power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. The more powerful it gets, the more likely it is to succumb to its own vulnerabilities. It is, a, it is simply a network, it is a system that does not survive in the face of adversaries. It survives in the face of honest actors. And I think that's just a bug. It's just a bug. It is simply a flaw in how the system works such that it cannot survive in the long run because inevitably that which can be corrupted will be corrupted. That which can break will break. And that's exactly why Bitcoin is such a great example of the of a, an emergence of an entirely new monetary phenomenon. And the fact that anthropology would see that before the very profession that would study money, where they should actually know what the hell money is, is very ironic to me. But like I said at the start of this, is it's just another great example of how many different perspectives you can have of Bitcoin. How many different ways and how many different disciplines it touches. And the fallacy or the, the very large problem of being skilled in one discipline and then thinking that that means that you know something about Bitcoin. I'm, a, I'm an incredible cryptographer, therefore I understand Bitcoin. But maybe you don't understand the first thing about the economics of it. I'm a brilliant economist. Uh, therefore, I understand Bitcoin. I'm a brilliant web dev. Therefore, I understand Bitcoin. And I think this is the biggest trap. I think the, the people who fail to grasp Bitcoin the worst are the ones who know the most about a very narrow discipline that Bitcoin touches. And they come in with the arrogance. They come in with the confidence that they are going to be able to point out what this thing is. You know, they're, they're, they specialize in the, the analogy of all the blind men um, uh, looking at or, or um, trying to describe the elephant. And, you know, somebody's at the trunk, somebody's at the toe, somebody's at the tail, somebody's um, trying to assess the leg of this massive beast. And so everybody has incredibly different descriptions of what this thing is. And yet not one of them is going to have anything close to the description of an elephant. So this one just stood out to me, this article. Um, really good. Uh, great job, uh, Mick. Um, I really love this one. And um, uh, this, was, this was kind of a new perspective for me. Um, I hadn't really thought about it. Like I, I usually think of anything in the monetary history as economics. But really there is a lot of kind of anthropology like perspective or mindset that goes into a lot of like, like what Nick Zabo writes and stuff. It's actually, uh, it's kind of given me a new thing, I think, to maybe do a little bit of a rabbit hole dive on to maybe better understand the social elements and the collective belief elements of Bitcoin with having an explicit frame to go kind of hunting on that. And uh, by the way, I hope 
I hope you write, uh, if, if you listen to this, I hope you write a lot more on this topic because this is really fascinating and this is something that, at least from my perspective, feels like there's very little real exploration of Bitcoin, or at least I haven't stumbled upon it. If there are really good pieces out there that um, uh, kind of take this view of it, I would be very interested. Everybody, again, you know, anybody, please feel free to suggest. I love recommendations. I love suggestions. Um, I do have kind of a long list now on the Bitcoin Audible vote page, um, but I'm going to try to get to all of it. Uh, like I said, it's going to be a little bit, um, a little bit slow um, for the next week or so. So uh, hopefully, hopefully I can keep pumping this stuff out. But I will see a lot of you I know at Bitcoin 2021, and I've still got a lot to prepare. Um, uh, a huge thank you to Shift Crypto and the Bitbox O2 hardware wallet. It really is just an awesome, simple, secure, and open source hardware wallet for somebody, specifically for somebody who is new. Uh, coupon code GUY gets you 5% off. And of course, our other sponsor, Swan Bitcoin, the automatic, no-hassle Bitcoin savings plan. I use them religiously, and they are the only ones that I recommend. And it is not because they are my sponsor. It is because it is the only one that I really use. So thank you to both of them for making Bitcoin Audible possible. And with that, thank you all for listening to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan. I got a lot of stuff coming, so don't forget to subscribe. And until next time, everybody, take it easy, guys. This has been Bitcoin Audible, a 111 production.